Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 15 years of teaching experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. I strongly support and value the uniqueness of all individuals and provide a safe community where diversity is embraced. Through my mentorship and signature program called the Blueprint Learning Program, I help yoga teachers build their skills in the area of learning anatomy, and along with that, help them learn important business skills and personal development ways of being that will transform them into purpose-driven teachers who make a big impact. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. For more information and to get on the wait list for any of my programs, see my website, barebonesyoga.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 90. So I'm recording this on August 17th, 2020, and I just want to... Um, you know, just kind of acknowledge the date. I think it's always nice to kind of orient listeners <laughs> to when this was recorded. I was actually listening to a podcast and watching it on YouTube and um, the host and the guest were in the same recording studio. So I was really curious to know what the date was because of course, right now we're dealing with the pandemic, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And so I found it curious that uh, the guest had traveled to uh, California to be with the host in person. So uh, I very much look forward to the day when we listen to these older episodes and it is the future and we're, we're past the bulk of um, this particular um, situation that we are all living through. So, uh, so again, here we are on the 17th. I'm recording this. You're either listening to it today, if it went live today, or perhaps tomorrow. So I want to um, just start out by kind of talking about something that's come up a couple times in some emails I've gotten from teachers. And this has to do with the um, what can sometimes be a, a divide or a separation between how we see ourselves currently as teachers and where we want to go. And I think really for the most part, everybody, maybe not everybody, but many teachers have ambitions about where they want their teaching to go. And so I think to some extent, there's always that sense of um, uh, I'm in work, right? I'm working on improving this, or I'm working on developing this skill, you know, because I want to get from where I am now to this other place. And I think on some level that can be really motivating and productive and it can keep us on track. It can help inspire us to um, set up new goals for our development. What I'm talking about though is more of this kind of beating yourself up for not being where you wanna be. And if it's not even that, it's just this inability to really move forward because you're so stuck in where you are right now. 
And so if you're listening to this as a yoga teacher and you're feeling like, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get where I want to go as a teacher, or I've got this challenge or this thing happening in my personal life or even something regarding the pandemic, you know, and it's just getting in the way or there's so much to know, you know, you're kind of in this thickness of feeling the weight of something or many things, right? And so if that's where you're at and you feel that it is impacting your ability to move forward, what I want to offer you is not so much a reframing. And so reframing is something that I'm very big on and it, it comes from neuroscience. Um, it's something else that really also you could think about it from a neuroscience uh, perspective. This um, exercise to put yourself in the future, <laughs> you know, so I think in the yoga world, we would call this visualization. What I'm talking about is, is very much like that. It, it's giving yourself regular opportunities to see yourself teaching in the way you want to. And what I always find really curious about this when I have these kinds of conversations with teachers is that they are always able to articulate really clearly and with a lot of detail <laughs> about where they want to be and how they would see themselves. It's not like they can't describe it. And so this is always interesting to me because if we can describe it so clearly, and we know it on an intellectual level and can articulate it, we can speak to it with really good detail, then that means we really do have the ability. It's just that there are other things in the way. And a lot of that, for the most part, in my experience personally, is self-limiting beliefs. And it's only through doing the work um, of really uncovering those self-limiting beliefs. And sometimes you can't do them alone. Uh, sometimes you need some help to uncover them. And sometimes it's not even like you need a therapist or something like that on the professional level. Sometimes you just need someone outside you to be a sounding board, to hear the stories you're saying, to ask you questions about the limits that you're putting on yourself. I mean, quite frankly, this is some of what comes up when I work with teachers in my mentorship program. It's not like I'm looking for these things. It's just that when I'm working with them on tactical things around cueing, around how they're approaching their teaching, um, why they might not be pursuing a particular business opportunity or shying away from other things, what comes up are the teacher's statements about what they believe their obstacles are. And I'm really just being a sounding board. I'm really just being a questioner. Well, so why do you think that you couldn't pursue that? You know, and that's what I mean about sometimes, I mean, when you look at, and I, I don't want to suggest that this is where anybody is. I just know from my clinical work with people who are clinically depressed, when you are in a clinical depression, one of the really difficult things for you is to get out of your own thoughts, to get out of your own head. And that's why therapy can be helpful because it simply is someone else to reflect back to you what they're hearing you say and to also provide another perspective, not to maybe change your mind, but to just kind of 
begin to unstick you from the rigid way that you're seeing things. And this is often very classical presentation of someone who's clinically depressed. They have very rigid thinking. Now I have people in my life who are clinically depressed. I have not um, been through that at any kind of clinical level. However, I can say that I am very susceptible to rigid thinking. And it was only when I worked with a neuroscience coach that I was able to see how my rigid thinking was holding me back, both professionally and personally. And she was not a therapist, she was a neuroscience coach. However, in neuroscience lies this, um, not so much discipline, in neuroscience lies this um, understanding or appreciation uh, for the brain and the mind and how they work and how self-limiting thoughts are many times for many of us, what is really preventing us from stepping into our true power. And so part of this exercise of seeing yourself being the way you want to be is to begin to, to build in you, um, even on a, a neuro psych perspective, um, um, from the perspective of just starting to get your brain used to seeing yourself in this way, even if it's just a visualization. So when we think about, you know, just in the neuroscience world, uh, plasticity, right? So this refers to the brain's ability to relearn something it knows differently. Let's say on a very basic level, you play tennis and you change your grip, you play golf and you change your grip. Um, on a deeper level, let's say you're someone who's very frugal, saves money all the time, very afraid of spending money, and you begin to examine your self-limiting beliefs around money, or even just your beliefs around money. And through that examination, you begin to change the way you handle money, right? So that would be an example of neuroplasticity because you're able to change what a belief that you held maybe for many, many years. So now if you take that belief and you make it less about money and more about you, let's say you're someone that has something about your way of being that you feel is a barrier to people connecting well with you or makes you self-conscious. And so you're kind of stuck in this mindset that I'm never going to be a successful teacher because people are always going to notice this about me. And so that self-limiting belief is what you know, can be examined and through visualization and seeing yourself teaching in a way where people aren't noticing it, you know, where people are embracing your individuality. So that, again, this is, this is part of what I wanted to offer if you're feeling like you're stuck and um, stuck in a lot of this negative thinking and kind of this self-defeating uh, thought process. So that's, um, that's just something there I want to start out with. And then I also wanted to give a shout out to the teachers who finished the anatomy piece of their 200 hour training with me. I taught uh, a five or six session series of workshops on Saturdays for the past three months to teachers here in the Boston area uh, who enrolled in the completely virtual 
uh, online training, 200 hour training with Wonder Yoga. And Wonder Yoga is a, a really great studio here in the Boston area. And I've been doing the anatomy portion of their 200 hour trainings for a couple of years now. And, um, you know, because of the COVID pandemic, we've been doing, they've been doing the trainings online. And I really loved working with those teachers. And so if any of you are listening, I just want to give you a shout out for the great job you did over the past three months in learning about anatomy. And, you know, I want to just say, because every time I come to the end of one of my anatomy portions of 200 hour trainings, you know, people always comment on, oh, it's just a lifelong process to learn anatomy. And there's just still so much I don't know. And, you know, again, kind of that weight of the world on you perspective. And so what I want to emphasize is that the way I teach anatomy is a very structured blueprint process. That's why I call my signature program the blueprint learning program, because I set teachers up with a blueprint for how to learn anatomy. And even if in the training, you know, someone's particular comprehension isn't so great in a particular area, or of course, the training can only cover so much in five or six sessions, you still have the blueprint. And so what I would say to you is right now, if you're out there kind of all over the place trying to learn anatomy, it's really, really helpful for you to have a blueprint that will guide what you're even looking to learn. Without a blueprint, anatomy is a subject where you can go down so many rabbit holes and very quickly get overwhelmed and frustrated because you're going down a rabbit hole that's giving you interesting information maybe, but nothing that you can really tie back to how you're going to translate it into teaching and offer it to your students. And that is ultimately why you're learning anatomy. Um, you're not learning anatomy to be a physical therapist or a personal trainer or a doctor or a nurse. So there's a very kind of niche application. And with that niche application comes a really cool opportunity for us to niche down what we're even trying to learn. A really good example of that is I don't teach every single muscle in the body. I teach a lot of muscles involved in gross motor movement, involved in the big movements that people make on the yoga mat. Now, there are definitely times I have to look stuff up. If people ask me a question about fine-tuned motion in the hands, um, you know, movement of the fingers. However, the bulk of it I've got covered and students who come to my trainings have covered because we've addressed those muscles. However, that's a really good example where you can approach anatomy thinking you've got to learn all these muscles and it becomes almost a Herculean task. So if you're looking for a way to chunk it out, I would definitely say get on the wait list for my blueprint learning program because I can show you a blueprint and make through my program, make the learning so much easier. If you're not interested in doing that, which is totally fine. I would say just have a really good outline. I have um, a number of free downloads. One of them is 10 steps to learning anatomy right on my website. You can download for free. So that brings us to um, today's topic. And I want to just start out with just a kind of an inquiry question for you. I want you to think about references to the spine that come up in your teaching, because we're going to talk about the spine today. So think about what words are you using when you're talking about the spine, 
right? Do you say, I'm sure you probably say things like lengthen your spine or strengthen your spine, or maybe you say open your heart. And that refers to a back bend, which is a spinal movement. So, you know, these images and actions all refer to the spine, but how much do you really know about the anatomy that supports your spine? So today we're going to take a quick look at some of what's included there. Now, why did I pick this? Why does this even matter? Well, the spine, I mean, even if you don't know much about anatomy, you know where the spine is. And just because of its placement, you know that it's the central line of the body. It's the super highway of sorts when you study the impact of the nervous system on the periphery. And even as we stay, you know, because we're pretty much staying in my conversations with you in the musculoskeletal arena versus the nervous system arena. Um, and so even if we stay in that area, the spine and its associated bones, muscles, and joints impacts just about every movement that we do. Now, while we often teach to the periphery, namely the arms, the legs, and, um, and the feet, many times the muscles that initiate movement reside closer to the spine than far away from it. So, I mean, a perfect example of that is downward dog the shoulder flexion muscles and the external rotation muscles are on the chest, even though the hands are on the ground. So that's, that's a good example of that there. Further, the, the frequency of back-related injuries is significant in the population. So it's really important that teachers understand the components of the spine. So that's just kind of a little bit of a, you know, justification of why we're even looking at the spine itself. So when you look at the spinal column, you have the cervical, the thoracic, the lumbar, the sacrum, and the coccyx. So those are the five main sections of the spine. You've got seven cervical vertebrae, um, 12 thoracic vertebrae, five lumbar, and then you've got the sacrum and the coccyx, which are at the uh, lower portion of the spine itself. And when we look at the sacrum, on either side of the sacrum, we've got the two pelvic bones. And then the coccyx is otherwise known as the tailbone. And that's pretty common in terms of how people refer to it. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a cervical vertebrae. So if I say, imagine a cervical vertebrae in your mind, I don't know if that's going to be challenging for you. When I say cervical vertebrae, or, or let me just not even say cervical vertebrae. Let's just say when I say vertebrae. So if I look at the individual bones that comprise the spine, each bone is a vertebrae. Um, and when, I don't know if you've ever looked at, a, at an image of a vertebrae, but it's the bone, and then there's a hole where the spinal cord goes, and then there's other holes where other spinal nerves uh, are as well. So those holes indicate things are going through them. But then there's a really big chunky part at the front, and then there's a really kind of long spiny part in the posterior aspect of a vertebra. Um, and vertebra is the individual term, vertebrae is the plural. So if you take your hand right now and run it down your back, you'll feel the little spiny part of each vertebra, which feels kind of like a knobbiness as you palpate down your spine. And so if you are looking at an image of a vertebrae or a vertebra from the top, you would see, and if you were looking at it as if the person were facing forward. So let's say you were hovering above somebody's head and you were looking down 
through their skull and you could see their spinal column. And then you could see the vertebrae all stacked up in a row. You would see the body of the vertebrae, which is the big part facing the front of the person. You would see the spinous process of the vertebrae, which is what you just palpated, that part that sticks out in the back. And then you'd also see these little wings out to the side, which are the transverse processes. So that's just a general kind of sense of um, the shape of each vertebrae. Now, when we look at um, vertebrae themselves, you know, there are, um, there's the, what we're talking about here, which is the bones, right? The vertebrae are the bones, but then, you know, just about everybody knows there are discs, even if they don't really know what the discs are, they know that there are discs. And so think about it. If there weren't discs between your vertebrae, you probably wouldn't be able to move because you would just have a whole stack of bones that literally were stacked one on top of the other. But you don't have that. You have bone and then disc and then bone and then disc. So vertebrae, uh, vertebra, disc, vertebra, disc. And when we look at the disc itself, it is a circular thing, right? So disc, I think is a good obvious term for it. But the disc is not the same throughout. It has a harder, more fibrous part on the outside, and then the middle is softer. And so the outer part is called the annulus fibrosus, and the softer inner part is the nucleus pulposus. And when you think about that, that makes a lot of sense too, because you want the outer part to be a little harder because that's going to withstand, be able to withstand a little more pressure and won't decompose upon movement as easily but you'd want something a little softer to be on the, in the middle of the disc because we want the spine to allow us to move. And so again, if it was just a bunch of bones, a bunch of vertebrae stacked one on top of the other, we wouldn't be able to move. We have the discs, but if the discs were really hard, it would be just similar to bone, even collagen as a, as a, um, as a material is hard. So this isn't even that. So the soft inner part, the nucleus pulposus is definitely softer. And so the disc is between each vertebra and that affords the movement. And when we look at the discs from the neck all the way down to the low back, they're smaller at the top. And you can kind of just think of that because your neck moves a lot more easily than your thoracic spine or your lumbar. And the discs at the base of the spine, the lumbar spine, are a lot thicker. And that, again, reflects that the further down your spine you go, there's more weight that the spine needs to withstand. And then you have your legs, right? So you've got your lumbar spine and your legs are right there. So, you know, those discs are feeling the effect of leg movement a lot more than your cervical discs are. So now we've looked at the parts of the spine, right? So cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacrum, coccyx, the discs in between, the nucleus pulposus in the middle, the annulus fibrosus. Now I want you to think about if you're standing in anatomical position, which is essentially mountain pose, and you fold forward, your vertebrae are going to compress at the front and your disc is gonna move 
the soft part of your disc is going to move to the back. If you are standing up and you start to move into a back bend as if you were going to go into wheel pose from standing, your vertebrae are going to compress in the back and your disc material is going to push to the front. If you do a side bend, your vertebrae are going to compress on the side you're bending to and your disc material is going to move to the opposite side and then vice versa. So this is just a description of what's happening in the body all up your spinal column in each one of your discs as you move. And so this becomes important for us as teachers to acknowledge that as we take people in different positions, we're affecting the movement of their discs by asking people to bend forward, bend back, lean to the side, lean to the other side, even twisting. So any of the movements that we have people do are going to translate to forces on these discs. And this is something to acknowledge, especially when we start to think about how we have people arranging their limbs. The further away from the spine the limbs are like if i have my arms outstretched and i forward fold versus if i have my hands at my heart and i forward fold that's going to have a very different effect on the spine and the discs themselves because when my arms are outstretched and i fold forward there's a lot more weight that is fighting there's a lot more that gravity can act upon because my arms are sticking out versus if I bring my hands to my heart, there's not as much. I'm kind of working more in concert with gravity, which is why it can be problematic for people. They'll feel more effort and even some pain if they have back pain, if they forward fold with their arms sticking out like a swan dive versus if they have their hands together at their heart. That's another reason why any of those kinds of movements where we are working like really far away from the central line, center line, it's helpful to recruit other muscles through the cues you give, whether it's core muscles or having people root into their legs, rather than having them exploit their low back to support their body and that extra force that's now acting on their limbs of gravity as they take the movement, whatever it is. So that's just a little, I kind of fast forwarded a little bit there in terms of some of the impact on movement. We'll go into some of that a little bit more uh, uh, in a moment. So now let's take a look at some of the um, muscles of the spine. So the most kind of common group of muscles of the spine, and I'm only gonna touch on a couple of muscles here, uh, is the erector spinae. Now, even if you break down the erector spinae, you've got breaking, you, you have an opportunity to look at the erector spinae by breaking it down into the muscles that comprise it. When I teach anatomy, I basically refer to the global group of muscles, which is commonly referred to as the erector spinae. And when you think of the name, the erector spinae itself, you can derive what those muscles do. They keep us erect, <laughs> they keep us erect, and they are spinal muscles. And so when you're standing up, your erector spinae are working to help you stay standing. 
if you lean forward a lot, your erector spinae are not having an opportunity to do their job of keeping you erect. So they're going to tend to be somewhat weak because they're always trying to fire to kind of keep you erect, but you're not doing that. You're, you're hunching forward. Um, if you were to do a back bend, your erector spinae would need to engage even more in order to allow you to do that. <coughs> Excuse me. So that just kind of, in terms of the muscles, the main muscle group involved uh, is a really good muscle group to get familiar with. Uh, and you can envision the erector spinae, if their job is to keep you erect, you can imagine they're running parallel to the spine right? Because the spine keeps you erect when you think of it from a bony structure perspective. And then if you were to go beyond that to muscles that keep you erect, they would have to pretty much run up and down the spine. They couldn't be little tiny muscles. They couldn't be crisscrossing the spine. They would pretty much have to run like train tracks up and down. And that's what they do. So the erector spinae, there's three sets of them on each side. And they are basically like, you know, almost like train tracks that just kind of, uh, or just lines running in, in concert with the spine. And, you know, so that gives you the basic structure. Now, yes, there are other muscles, like we could talk ad nauseum about other muscles, maybe not ad nauseum, but we could definitely talk at length here about other muscles. I'm just gonna make a, a slight reference here to um, twisting muscles. So we have rotatores, which are really close to the spine themselves. And they are um, muscles of rotation. We also have a deep back muscle called the multifidus, and that is a deep muscle of lower back support. We also can look on the anterior aspect of the body and look at muscles in the core even though they're core muscles, they affect the spine. So the rectus abdominis, which runs from your sternum to your pubic bone, when it concentrically contracts, you forward fold. So that's a spinal flexor. We can look at the transversus abdominis, which runs around your body, around your middle. And that is a muscle of integrity for the core. When you cinch in, uh, when you cinch the sides of the body in, it engages, it concentrically contracts. And so because it runs around your back, it essentially is both a core and a back muscle, right? Because it's back there. It's part of the lumbar, uh, lumbar uh, fascial area. And so that brings up the importance of having, you know, you've kind of heard this have a strong core, saves your back. This kind of gets, you know, gets to that. We can also even look at muscles like the quadratus lumborum because it runs from the uh, posterior iliac spine up to the lower rib and then runs um, medially on the lumbar vertebrae, I believe even the transverse processes I was talking about before. So the quadratus lumborum is our side bending muscle. So when you do things like half moon or triangle pose or side angle, you're using that muscle to help you side bend or side plank. So again, it's not really considered I don't really think it's considered like a spinal muscle. However, it literally touches the lumbar vertebrae and the posterior pelvis. So it's right in there, you know, making a contribution to lateral flexion of the spine, right? Instead of forward flexion. 
And then we said, if we're going to go into extension, like your up dog, your bridge, your wheel, uh, your camel, that's the role of erector spinae concentrically contracting. So that's just a little bit around the musculature. Now, let's just talk about some of the shapes and some of the anatomical terms for the shape. So I talked about forward flexion of the spine, lateral flexion of the spine. We can also look at um, we can also look at a sway back or what we call a um, lordotic spine. So that's kind of that caved in lower back. We can also refer to a kyphosis, a kyphotic spine, and that's the hunchback. And then we can also refer to the clinical condition, which is the S-curve in the spine or the scoliosis. So those are just some terms around the spine itself. Now, how we see um, spinal movement show up in yoga practice, so we might see something like a rounded back. So think of someone doing a forward fold at the beginning of class, and their hands are really far away from the floor, their legs are really straight, and their back is really round, and their chest is really far away from their legs, versus someone else who has their hands um, touching the ground, their knees might be slightly bent, and there's very little space between their chest and their thighs. Not like they're trying to, you know, really compress the chest to the legs. It's just that it's more of a natural fold where the head is hanging low without a sense of resistance. In the first scenario, the person, when you look at them, it looks like they're locking out their knees and their back is really round and it looks really uncomfortable. And so that's what we would call a rounded back, not in a clinical way, like when I was saying hunchback slash um, kyphosis, just more, this is how this person presents when I ask them to forward fold. And you can think of that in terms of what you see, right? You see the rounded back, and then you have to think, well, why would that be happening? What would be limiting the person from where they are now to going into a forward fold where their chest is closer to their thighs. And the answer lies in the posterior aspect of the leg. So now we're looking at the hamstrings, which begin on the ischial tuberosities, which is part of the pelvis. And so therefore, if the hamstrings and if the legs are straight and the hamstrings are therefore at, its full, at their fully stretched position and they originate on the hamstrings, they're pulling down. If you can kind of imagine like two strings, one on each sitting bone or two ropes and someone's pulling those ropes down towards the ground, the person's never going to be able to forward fold because that's moving in the completely opposite direction. Their hamstrings are too tight. The origin of the hamstrings on the sitting bones is pulling them into a posterior tilt almost of their pelvis. They want to anteriorly tilt their pelvis as they would in a forward fold. And the limitation is the hamstrings are too tight. So that's where the bend your knees cue comes up when you see people presenting in that way in a forward fold. And it applies exactly the same to your down dog. If you have somebody with tight hamstrings and down dog and they have their legs really straight, they're going to have that rounded back unless they maybe moderate their down dog a little bit by bending their knees. So that's the idea of the rounded back. The flat back is more of an artistic description that yoga teachers use. Um, and they either use it because they don't really, in my opinion, understand 
how the spine is structured, or they're just using it as a descriptive term to kind of cue people in a way to get them out of a rounding and to get them more to a flattening. However, and this is just a little disclaimer, the spine is never gonna be flat because the curves, I didn't talk about this, the curves of the spine you want to be there. So if you take your right hand and you place it behind your neck, you're gonna feel the inward curve of your cervical spine. If you take your right hand down your back a little more, you're gonna feel the bubble out of your thoracic spine. And if you take your right hand and put it in your low back, you're gonna feel the natural inward curve or the lordotic curve of your lumbar spine. So if I'm saying flat back a lot, especially when people do abs, they're probably gonna really push their lumbar into the floor, which is gonna take some of that natural curve away and just translate to a lot of excessive force on a lot of the muscles that are super close to the vertebrae themselves. So that's why I'm always really sensitive to saying flat back. I'd rather just avoid saying that and avoid the artistic interpretation by the students and just tell them another way to do what I want them to do. Uh, I don't think it's a bad cue. I just think you have to just watch for people to overdo it. Um, so that's kind of where the flat back comes in. Now, sway back, I talked about that before. So sway back is when you're pushing your belly forward really um, significantly and you have that caved in lower back. Now, this can sometimes show up when you have people do something like crescent lunge, where they're not really using any of the frontal anterior core muscles to support the, the shape. And so what's happening is they're just pushing their belly forward as they're reaching their arms up to the sky. It can also be a function of really tight erector spinae muscles in the lumbar spine, because if those muscles are super tight and they're always firing, they're gonna kind of leave that person in that constant state of muscle tone, and it'll look like the person has this really big sway back. And sometimes when you look at your students from the side, even if they're standing in Tadasana, you might think like, wow, it looks like they've got a really big um, caved in sway back, i.e. sway back in their lumbar spine, and that could potentially be it that kind of thing responds really well to myofascial release. So your foam rollers, your MFR balls, and, and that, that would definitely be something that I would suggest to somebody, especially if they were also complaining of pain. However, in the context of teaching, let's say you have somebody in crescent lunge or you're teaching crescent lunge and you see a lot of people are just kind of leaning in their low back, cue them to the front. So have them contract the rectus abdominis by pulling the belly button in a little bit. And that'll take them into a little bit more of a neutral spine, meaning quote unquote natural curves, which is pretty much in a lot of these shapes, a nice place to be because everything is just stacked according to the way it's meant to be versus taking it way beyond that. Some poses, we're going to go beyond that. Like when we do wheel, we are going into a really big lordotic curve, but it's just part of the pose. That's okay there, as long as we've got good body mechanics. Uh, however, if we're doing other things where the pose isn't really calling for that super big sway back, we want to try to coach people out of that into something that's a little more neutral. Um, so I talked about the naturally curved spine. The next part is this whole thing about rolling up to standing when people are in a forward fold. So I'm not a huge proponent of this. I think kind of the slow drip method of getting them from a forward fold to standing is a little more in the artistic arena. And I'm really a very functional movement 
teacher. So I don't usually kind of slow drip movements. I usually ask people to just do things. And I find that when you do that, it can take some of the strain out of the potential strain out of the movement, especially if there are parts of the body that are not super conditioned or parts of the body that are prime for an injury. So if I ask you to roll up to standing versus if I ask you to root into your feet and stand up, you're probably going to be less at risk in the latter presentation of the cues versus the former because the rolling up to standing one vertebrae at a time is again an artistic in my opinion an artistic representation um perhaps you're using it in classes that are more restorative perhaps you're using it in classes where you want people to move slowly and with more intentionality however now that we know about how those nucleus pulposus parts of our disc are moving you know if we can have people take that movement in a functional way it can in a way decrease any potential risk to the disc because the disc is where we start to hear about clinical conditions like slip disc or herniated disc or protruding disc and you never want anything that's supposed to be on the inside part of your body to the outside so words like protruding and slippage and you know, breakage and all of that is all uh, indicators of something clinical that has got, you know, needs to be addressed in the medical setting. So rolling up to standing, you know, is something that could potentially exacerbate or create um, an unsavory condition for a person, um, especially if they had something that was ready to go <laughs> in terms of an injury. And so again, there's really, I don't really see any justification to say it. Um, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. That's just kind of something, sometimes I just make choices about things I say and things I don't, because I know that there's an interpretation that generally might happen that I would prefer not to happen. So that's just kind of the anatomy behind that. And then um, we talked earlier about this idea of if people are standing up and you have them forward fold, but you have them do the swan dive, now their arms are way out far away from their spine, but the muscles that they're using live close to the spine. So from kind of a force vector uh, standpoint, I'm not getting all the engineering terms correctly, but you can even just try it yourself. When you forward fold with your arms way out versus forward fold with your hands at your heart, it's a lot less effort to have the hands close to the body. Um, and it's just a more biomechanical movement, biomechanically sound movement to forward fold with the hands close to the heart because then any of the muscles of forward folding, so we're talking about erector spinae, don't need to contend with the added weight of the arms, which are now fighting gravity and way far away from them. So from those muscles that are close to the spine. So that's some, some of the logic there. And again, every once in a while, is it going to be a big deal? Probably not. Um, it may be some of these things may be things that you just choose to take out of your teaching verbiage. And some of them you may just use every once in a while. And that's, you know, you'll have to make the decisions about that. Now, I want to just end with one more little piece, which is the piece of uh, questions people ask about back injuries. And I know this can be a scary thing for teachers because they start to feel like if they don't know what the injury is or they don't recognize the diagnoses, they're not sure they can help the person or they feel like they're put in a position where now they need to say something and they don't know what to say. You know, like, tell me what I should do type of thing. So number one, just remember your professional scope of focus is, of course, as a yoga teacher, so you're not there to treat anybody. So that, you know, really takes you off the hook. 
for the most part, you know, you could basically say, you know, I'm not really sure. I would suggest you talk to your doctor. That would be kind of really, really handing off the ball. Now, because you are a movement teacher, you absolutely can help them with, uh, with questions they have and should. I think what can be really helpful though, is rather than thinking that it's all on you to think of you in partnership with the student in coming up with something that could be helpful as an approach. So I always say when people say to me about any injuries, but let's just, since we're talking about the spine, let's say someone comes up to me and says, hey, um, my doctor cleared me for practice, but I do have a mild herniation at L4. So I just want to let you know that is something that I am dealing with. So my first question always is, okay, thanks for letting me know. How does that impact your movement? Because that's really where the rubber meets the road for me as a yoga teacher. Even if I don't know the details of the clinical uh, diagnoses that they shared with me, if they tell me how it impacts their movement, I know movement, right? And so if they tell me, well, I can do this and I can't do that, and they give me some detail there, I can definitely create a repertoire of postures that will be in the area of things they can do, movements they can do. And so that's a really good way to frame it when you first start the conversation. And then the other thing to frame whatever suggestions you give to them is to um, think about once you have an idea of the movements they can do, think about postures that take them in that movement and then think about postures that take them away from that movement. Because in that approach, you're gonna be strengthening and lengthening based on the, the postures you give. People are generally gonna think, oh, if I have tight erector spinae muscles in my lumbar spine, I really should stretch them. And maybe that's true, but how do you know? Like you're not doing MRIs or CAT scans or not CAT scans, MRIs or X-rays of, of your students. So you don't know what's going on with the muscles. You've got their verbal report and that's basically it. You're not doing muscle testing. You're not palpating the area, right? That's all living in the clinical world. So all you've got to go on is the student's report. And that's good. It's just not enough to give you confidence that this definitely needs to be stretched. So that's why it's helpful to give them a bunch of poses that are gonna lengthen the area, give them a bunch of poses that are gonna strengthen the area, have them get back to you and say how it went. Oh, it really feels much better. I'm working in both directions or, you know, it feels really good when I do the lengthening. It kind of feels tweaky when I do the strengthening. What do you think that could be, right? So then maybe it's a matter of taking stuff away, adding more of one or the other, you know, all of this kind of work more commonly happens in one-on-one -on -one sessions versus public classes. And definitely now that we're for the most part teaching online, this is probably not going to come up in your online classes. However, I really, really, really want to emphasize that this pandemic is not going to last forever. I know our brains are kind of in this mode right now where we we can't even imagine a time without it because we're so in the thick of it for such a long time now. Um, however, it is not going to be around forever. So all of the learning you're doing right now, maybe learning that you're going to apply when we are back in the studios and that's okay. Right. In the meantime, you're going to apply it as much as you can to the online classes you're teaching and um, look for opportunities. I am offering outdoor private sessions. I am offering online private sessions. I am offering online 
classes, group classes. So, you know, there's lots of opportunities to pivot. And that's really what we can do as yoga teachers to change with the times. And, um, you know, I think it can open up a lot of opportunities that we really didn't have before. And the public is more willing to try different things because the normal things that, or the regular things or the other things that they did are no longer available to them, like going to classes in, in public spaces. So that is, uh, the conversation today. You know, I wanted to talk about the spine. I haven't really done a lot of work uh, content creation wise on the spine. So I wanted to do a, an episode on that. And I think in the beginning, I shared a lot of the anatomical rationale for that. So I want to just close by saying, you know, we're talking about online classes and offering them. My practice portal is my monthly membership. You can take classes with me for free in that. So all you got to do is go to my website, barebonesyoga.com and you'll see the image for the practice portal. When you click that, you can set up a free account and um, just take online classes with me for free. I would love to have you show up and you say, hey, I listen to podcasts. And you know, if you've got anatomy questions, we can cover them after the, after the class itself. So it's really easy to access. There's a whole bunch of other thing, a whole bunch of other stuff in the, pra in the uh, practice portal on the paid side. There's guided meditations and journal exercises and anatomy lesson, anatomy, little short anatomy lectures that precede specialty sequences. There's myofascial release sequences. So there's a lot in there and it's only $10.99 a month. So this is again, a way that I pivoted to be able to meet people where they're at right now, which is practicing at home. And I expanded my offering to include more than just yoga practice. I wanted to include things that I don't ever get a chance to really offer people when they come to my classes, which are part of overall health and wellness, meditation, myofascial release, all this like guided visualization and journal exercising and really bringing up a lot of this, you know, self-limiting beliefs that are getting in the way of our health and our wellness, along with all the other aspects of our life. So I've got a whole expand yourself section in there that goes into those journaling exercises and has some really specific guided meditations around topics like that. If that isn't of interest to you, there's plenty in there for you to practice to in terms of recorded live sessions, live sessions you can join, recorded sequences and specialty sequences. So it's the Barebones Yoga Practice Portal. Every week I have new classes that are live. You have to pre-register for the live classes uh, just so I know that you're going to show up. And um, I hope you'll check it out. So thanks so much for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes. I'd love to hear what you think. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening, especially if you've made it all the way here to the end. Thanks for sticking with me. See you on the next episode. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and I just want to remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program and my Mentorship Program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.